Good Tidings of Great Joy. This is part two. Uh, this past Sunday morning was part one. Jesus' Christmas words for deconstructing Christians. We looked at that. Tonight, Christmas and the destruction of death. Tomorrow morning at 10 a.m., the kind of people invited to the birth of Jesus. Christmas and the destruction of death. I have two texts that I want to look at. First comes from Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, partook of the same things. So if there's ever been a good Christmas text, this is about when Jesus came into this world and took on flesh and blood. So it's the birth of Jesus. He partook of the same things. Only you get something here that you don't get in Matthew 2 or Luke or Mark. You get something different in this text from Hebrews. Not just that he took on human flesh, but why he did. That, or so that, through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, right now, the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those, that's that's these people, the children, deliver all those. So here's why he was born. He was born, and the only thing that's talked about, he he wasn't born to give the Sermon on the Mount, he wasn't born to heal people. He wasn't born to give great teaching. He wasn't born to be a great example, not primarily, though he did all those things. Why was he born? He wanted to die. Because we die. And he's going to taste death for all the children and deliver all those who through fear of death, that's us, were subject. This fear of death did something to us. Lifelong slavery. I have another text I want to look at. And I want to show you the relationship between these two texts in the next little while together. Luke 2, 25 to 32. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the interesting names, the consolation of Israel. So this is something for Jewish people. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him, that's by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord... Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For for my, my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples light of revelation for the Gentiles, glory for your people Israel. That's, that's the all peoples, everybody. 
It's a wonderful link between these two passages that we're going to note, just note briefly now, and we'll study a bit more as we get into it. The words in the Hebrews chapter 2 text, they announce a victory over death. A victory over death, which is described as a work of the devil in that Hebrews text. And it's also a victory over the effects of death, even before we die, which are described in two words, bondage and fear. The passage in Luke chapter 2 describes a man who can, quotes, depart in peace, that's die, because he has seen, set his eyes on the Christ, the one who our Hebrews text said, came in flesh and blood, that's what Simeon was holding in his hands, came in flesh and blood to destroy the power of death over mankind. Simeon says, I can die in peace because I have held in my hands and seen the destroyer of death. That's the link between those two texts. That's okay as far as it goes. But here we are on this Christmas Eve. And we begin with our study from the text from Hebrews chapter 2, where so many questions beg raising. Perhaps the most obvious of which is, in what sense has the devil, with his power of death, in what sense has this been destroyed by Christ? What do you mean? In what sense is the visible, earthly scene, when we think of death, in what sense is it any better? Where are the marks of this victory over death? Look around you. It's everywhere, death. Approximately 60 million babies, little preborn boys and girls, have been killed by abortion just in North America. Let it hit. 60 million. Far more than the population of our whole country. Senseless shootings. Watch the news. Alcohol and drugs take a staggering toll every year in human life. We still have no real handle on the great killers of mankind, cancer, heart disease, various others, and the greatest killer of all. All you have to do is hang around to experience this one. It's called time, the passing of time. Let me have an announcement for you on Christmas Eve just to cheer you up. No one's getting out of here alive. Cemetery real estate's a big business. Does it not seem nervy? You've got these little verses from your Bible book to stare into this mountain of death and pain and destruction and say that with, with the coming of Christ, that little baby born 2,000 years ago has come the destruction of the one who has power of death, Satan, and also, in some way, has come with deliverance for people like we who have been in fear of bondage to death. Seriously? Does the writer of Hebrews intend to say people no longer die? Because that's not going to work. Is that the kind of victory 
Christ brought into this world with his physical body at Christmas. And if that isn't the message of our Hebrew text, what is? Is there a different kind of victory? One which isn't a compromise with death, but but perhaps conquers it in a different way. And if so, is that a smaller victory or a bigger victory? So I think you can see where I'm getting at. There's a lot of questions to answer from that text, and I'm asking you, yes, to do some work with me Christmas Eve. Point number one. Christ's victory over death doesn't remove its existence, but changes its nature. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. The same things is flesh and blood. That's what that means. Spirits can't die, so he had to have a physical body. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, so there. And, as if that wasn't enough, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I mean, the basic teaching points aren't complicated. Christ came in a physical body, verse 14. He did that so we could ex- he could experience death like we experience, 14. So his death is important. Apparently, it's the reason for his birth. Only after physically dying as we die could he then rise from the dead in a physical body, mind you, to demonstrate that his victory over death was in a fashion that relates to us with our physical bodies when we die. So this great text says we need to be raised physically if we're going to experience victory over death the way Jesus portrayed it. Lesson is precious, really precious. I've said to, I know we have lots of visitors, but I've said to our church family many times, if I'm still around and I die, and somebody gets speaking at my funeral and just talks about me, oh, he just floated off somewhere into heaven and he's with Jesus. I'm going to sit up in the coffin and just scream. That's not nearly what I'm after. Jesus' body came out of the grave. Resurrection. I'm waiting for Jesus to come back and raise this body, my father's body, my mother's body. Physical death, he took on flesh and blood, followed by physical resurrection. That's vastly different from physical death swallowed up by a great dark void, an endless soul sleep, or floating around on clouds, or whatever. Not interested. One other point. This victory over the one who has the power of death, this snatching of this trump card from Satan, it doesn't have to manifest itself immediately for that victory to be actual and fully accomplished. I I can't prove what I'm saying next from some chapter and verse, but I believe it with all my heart. I honestly believe there's a reason Jesus remained in the grave for three days and nights. He didn't have to. 
Certainly, he could have physically died, been really dead, raised the same afternoon, and nothing in our redemption would be lost. Everything would still work. But in the passing of some time in the grave, we have a picture of of, uh, waiting for resurrection. Not immediate. Waiting for resurrection. Even the first foundational, what the Bible calls first fruits, resurrection of our Lord. Time passes between death and resurrection life. I'll tell you why that's important to me, because none of the waiting graves that we visit has opened up yet. And that's not a problem for me. This fits in with God's Easter plan. Jesus didn't rise instantly. We wait for his resurrection three days and nights, and nothing is lost with that experience of waiting. We have proof of it. We're still waiting for loved ones to raise from the grave. And that was established in the very first resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the passing of time between death and resurrection. But remember, there's still nothing else God has to do for this victory to be accomplished. I mean, there is no additional work for God to do to make my future life certain. It is all done. He doesn't have to intervene again. He has already, the text says, already destroyed the one who has the power over death. Yes, people still die. But death has been changed forever, and and Satan can do nothing to reverse that. Say that sentence over in your head very slowly and emphatically. I chose those words as carefully as I could. This is a joy-filled, short Christmas sentence. Satan can do nothing to reverse Christ's victory. He can do nothing to reverse Christ's victory. But even that isn't enough. It doesn't capture the scope of the kind of victory Christ won over the power of Satan and death. Point number two. The victory won by Christ's physical death and resurrection not only provides immortality, that's precious and true, but grace and righteousness and confidence before a holy God right now. I realize you probably all know this, but but I want to help, if I can, to make you think about this in a fresh way, because the kind of victory Christ won over Satan and the power of death is tied to more than just future resurrection. It's also tied to present security and joy. I'm thinking about that little phrase, we've been delivered from In Hebrews, verse 15, the bondage of the fear of death. I want you to pretend with me for a minute. Let your imagination kind of run wild and pretend with me just for a minute. Let's pretend just for a moment that Eve and then Adam, as described in the Bible, didn't give in to temptation. Let's pretend that as the years have rolled by, so far, so far, everyone, everyone has turned Satan's 
tempting offers down. Everybody. So far, the fall hasn't happened. So far, the curse hasn't been carved into weeds and sweat and blood and sickness and death over the earth. So far. It's hard, isn't it, to even imagine what the world would be like. What would the world be like without sin and the effects of sin? How grand our world would be. Think about living in a world, we can't imagine it, can we? Where, where no one person ever, ever has to think about any kind of sickness. Ever. There are no hospitals because there's no need for hospitals. Think about what our world would be with like without war, crime, no tornadoes, earthquakes, no mosquitoes, dogs that bite. Think of a world where there's no such thing as a thief, no such thing as a mugger, no such thing as a drug peddler. Locks would never be invented for doors. You'd never need them. No such thing as a police officer. What for? It would be very easy, would it not, if we were at, pretend with me, we're in that situation, it would be very easy to assume paradise had come. That things were perfect in every way. But they wouldn't be. Not quite. And I want to tell you why. Things wouldn't be quite perfect because we would still be sitting right on the edge of losing it all. We would be inches, one moral failure away from disaster. Someone would come along with a selfish, proud thought. A lie. We would, even if things were perfect so far, we would be in the most insecure position imaginable. And, and we would feel that fear, knowing what we know about the blazing holiness of God. We would know that all of us just had probationary status until somebody blew it. The first sinful choice would lead to disaster, and ruin. Now, against that, I said, pretend background, we start to taste the sweetness of the kind of victory Christ won over the devil and the power of death that chained our lives in fear. You see, as fallen people, imperfect people, but fully redeemed, we now live not on the edge of paradise being lost, but in secure grace for all of our sin, full provision for all of our joy and security for all eternity. Let me put it to you this way. Which is truly the more favorable position? To be unfallen but left to our own unaided energies and devices to sustain it? 
or to be fallen, but fully pardoned, fully cleansed, fully united to Christ in eternal life and victory that neither our weakness nor the grave can ever take away. I suggest the second position is better. This is the genius of Christ's victory. He has returned a thousandfold more than Satan has taken away. And remember, remember, the devil can do nothing to reverse this. That's the Hebrews 2 text. Now I want to move quickly, I promise, to our second text, the story of Simeon at the temple and the presentation of Jesus who took on flesh and blood. And the text says, Simeon, how did he hold him? It says he took him up in his arms. Point number three. Simeon recognizes the coming of victory over death in the person of Christ and proclaims his readiness to die in peace. It had been revealed to him, Luke 2.26, by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And when he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For, for my eyes have seen your salvation. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. There's a common belief, not really stated anywhere in the scriptures, but you hear people talking about it that our departed loved ones in some disembodied state can peer through the veil that separates them from us in ways we can't see from our earthly viewpoint. It's quite a common, even at funerals, sometimes people will start talking to the person in the casket. And you wonder, do they, think, do they think he's up there hearing, listening? I suppose that kind of thinking might help lessen the gap that we feel in our grief when loved ones are departed from us. But I think it's highly unlikely to be the case scripturally. And I'll tell you why. The Bible talks about those who have died in Christ, especially as being with Christ and also in some way being at rest. And I... I sometimes find it hard to imagine how much rest they would get if they had to sit and watch all of the blundering, idiotic, ungodly things that we continue to do down here. Do they really deserve that? Can you imagine, seriously, how tawdry all our earthly dreams and pursuits would look to those who sit at the feet of Jesus in the heavenly kingdom I don't think they could stand to watch some of the trinkets they see us giving our lives to. I mean, just spend an hour on your knees and you can view life on earth very differently. Now, imagine the unbroken fellowship at the feet of Jesus in heaven and how that would shape our perspective on the silly escapades of so much of life on earth. No, I don't think they do. I don't think they'd want to. But be that as it may, 
Here's what we know from this text. After Simeon sees Jesus in the flesh, he says he's happy, he's ready, 29 and 30, to die in peace. So so in other words, it's the advantage of seeing Jesus before he dies that this passage highlights. Simeon sees something as he holds the flesh and blood of that baby. Simeon sees something that makes him ready to die. I'm not saying the benefits of Christ's death don't apply to countless Old Testament saints who never saw Christ in the flesh. We know better. I'm only saying that Simeon is specifically set forth as an example of one saint at the closing of the Old Testament era and the dawning of the new. And Simeon knows his time in the presence of Christ, born in the flesh. He knows it's one of fulfillment and anticipation. You see, we can't imagine the climb that faith had to make before that first Christmas. True, we're all saved by faith, Abraham, Moses. But before Christ was born, saints not only had to place their faith in the work of the Messiah, hard enough, but they had to exercise faith that such an object of faith would even come. They not only had to believe in salvation accomplished by God Almighty, as you and I must believe, but they had to exercise faith that God would one day take flesh and blood and be a redeemer. Now, Simeon sees the redeemer. All the anticipation, all the years. Simeon sees the redeemer. He holds him in his arms and prays, Births forth, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Text is more amazing than a first glance might reveal. Imagine these are Simeon's words upon seeing nothing but a baby. That's all he saw. I mean, we get the Christmas story, but we get it looking in the rearview mirror. So it's not hard for us to see how special this baby was. Simeon doesn't have all that. You're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. My eyes have seen your salvation. All he saw was a baby. Remember, no halo. Silent night with the beams coming from It's pretty, but no. No. There were no singing angels. Not here. No shouting shepherds. All Simeon sees is a baby. Nothing else. We know from the text that Simeon has an understanding of the death of Jesus. One day what that will accomplish, a a light of revelation for the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel, 32. But right now, it's just a baby. The point I'm making, church, is we have so much more. 
We have so much more. You and I have seen the baby grow and love and teach and heal and die and rise again from the grave. We have his actual promise to come again. Simeon never had it and rule and reign over a new creation in which righteousness dwells. That's what we have when we celebrate Christmas. We have the full picture. We have seen the victory of the lamb over the one who has the power of death and the bondage the fear of death brings into our insecure lives. We've seen the grace of a Savior who, while we were still sinners, we never did earn it. We don't have to worry about qualifying because that's not how we got in in the first place. I think Jesus was thinking along the same lines as Simeon in words that should pound truth into our ears and hearts. I close. This is Jesus speaking. But blessed are your eyes. Blessed, blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, Many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see. You ever wonder why your Bible's got this many pages getting ready for the coming of Jesus in the New Testament? All these people longing. That's what this is about. Longing to see what you've seen. I can go down to the grave in peace, says Simeon. I've held in my arms God's salvation. I've held in my arms God's victory over Satan, sin, death. The bondage to fear is broken. Having seen the Messiah, there is nothing to keep you or me from dying in genuine confidence and peace. Joy to the world indeed. Joy to the world indeed. And everyone said...